From the Catholic Diocese of Sioux Falls Office of Adult Faith Formation, this is the Prairie Rome Companion with Dr. Chris Bergwald. Hello, I'm Dr. Chris Bergwald, and welcome to this special episode of Prairie Rome Companion. In this episode, we are going to hear the question and answer session from Dr. Joel Barstad and Mike Epler's presentations at a recent Faith for Life event in the Diocese of Sioux Falls. I hope you enjoy the question and answers, and if you have any questions for me, please feel free to contact me at cbergwald at sfcatholic.org, c-b-u-r-g-w-a-l-d at sfcatholic.org. Thank you, and God bless you. Why is it that that educated people don't believe in God? That was part of that was what I was using that quote to introduce to. I think it's important to to bear in mind the real factors at at play um, when we start talking about belief and unbelief. What was it that Tolstoy identified? It wasn't it wasn't the intellectual difficulty of believing in God that caused members of his educated class to stop practicing their faith. It was that they were surrounded by people who who didn't believe that it was important. Nobody made an argument. When, when, uh, when that fellow's brother said to him, oh, you still do that, he didn't argue him out of believing in God. He just pointed to his irrelevance. Okay, something that, that the, the young man was already feeling because he was moving into a society in which God was not a criterion for any of the judgments that were being made. So I think the first misapprehension that we have to, to overcome is to think that educated people do not believe in God because um, it's difficult intellectually. I think... Did the educated people of Jesus' time, how did they respond to him? I think if you, if you look at the witness of the Gospels regarding the encounters between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees, I think that there we, we come across um, the, the true motives. There are certain people that get invested in... Um, in directing society and in controlling society and trying to control other people. And what they do is they focus on external things, um, touch, don't touch that and eat this and so on. Um, in our own time, you, you'll have to think of your own examples of the ways in which people in cultural power um, try to keep us all in line. Okay, I don't want to make it sound like a conspiracy because it doesn't have to be a conspiracy. It's a kind of natural human tendency. They may, may even have the very best of intentions. They want a society which isn't violent, which isn't um, in, in which businesses can flourish and, and poor people can find work and so on. Their motives may be very good, um, but they become invested in in a kind of, in ruling. So um, when Jesus starts eating with sinners and adopts the kind of radical um, love-based attitude toward God and, and others, it's, it's something more than they can, can bear. There's also the dynamic, and this could happen to a poor person as well as an, an educated person, 
And that is, when you're in the presence of purity, if you have an encounter with Christ, not with me, for heaven's sakes, but with Christ through, through, the, through the church, um, you're confronted with, uh, with a choice. Do I want to admit? Do I want to admit that he's purer than I am? Um, so I think all of those things go into to, um, answering Dostoevsky's question. Dostoevsky himself answered it with a kind of, uh, there's this be there's beautiful passage in one of his letters where he says, I am a child of my age. I doubt and I will always doubt. But he says, God has given me moments when I am loved and when I love. And in one of those moments, I formulated my creed that there is nothing more honorable, more noble, more beautiful, more perfect than Christ. And I say there cannot be anything more beautiful than Christ. So um, that gives you some idea of the kind of, of, uh, of heart that Dostoevsky had. But I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but it's the best I can do. question was uh, a question of relativism in the way that it affects our young people today, uh, in the way that young people face their life, specifically Catholic kids, uh, meaning the question the relevance of the Mass, the qu uh, question the relevance of the, the, the various practices of the faith. I teach, in a, I teach in a public university uh, in southern Indiana with a student population of 11,000 is how many are in this university. And, and I'm amazed because um, uh, I spend a lot of time with the Catholic youth in southwest Indiana who then go on to that university. So I see them as they're formed and then I see them as their college students with no barriers or no authority at least it appears at the surface in their life. And I'm always amazed at the way Way that, that that relativism you're speaking of sinks in. Here's where young people are today, at least from my experience of them and looking at them. Young people today have not lost their heart. Not yet. At least not in southwest Indiana. Maybe on the coasts it's a little harder to get to it. But but in the Midwest, in the in the center of the country, and I think here still also, um, that the heart has yet to be flattened out. And so there's still what would be this, this desire or this sense of the heart to find an answer, to find a response. But what happens, what, I, what I've, I've experienced in the classroom is young people of any faith have been educated in the schools, public schools and even Catholic schools to some extent, to believe that we have to tolerate each other. Toleration is the key. And, and in this sense, there becomes this understanding that there is no objective truth. 
Now, we don't say it like that. We never would say it like that. But we have to say, in, in, the, in the educations, at least the socializing education that we receive in the schools, particularly in the public schools, is we have to be able to get along with each other. We have to be able to live together. And so the high school education from a cultural level, uh, cultural point of view, is to say, here are the ways that you of varying ideas, backgrounds, faiths, truths, what have you, can get along with these people. And we use terms like respect and tolerance and what have you. At least this is my experience of the kids in Southwest Indiana. What happens is, is the young people say, well, you've got your truth and I've got my truth and so long as we just get along with each other, it's okay. And I ask the kids, but, but what if your truths contradict each other? What if they don't equal each other? What if they, you know what I mean? What if they really outright argue with each other, these truths? And they say, well, it's just a matter of one's own opinion. This is the difficulty that we face, at least at a human level, uh, in education, at least for me, at the, at the level of the university. This is what the Holy Father is concerned about, especially at this level, is this relativization of truth. But to go back to this morning, what we're talking about, and, and the way to overcome that, is, is not to say what truth is, not to define it. Because I think this would be a mistake, at least, uh, for me as a particular person to say, well, I know the truth and you don't know the truth. This is not a human thing. As an educator, and I really was struck by what Joel was saying uh, about educating people using a yardstick, using a, a measurement, a criteria. And that is, if for me, in the classroom, even in a public university, is I say, use the criteria of your heart. Is it true or not true what I'm telling you? And it's always at the level of a provocation. At the level of, of trusting the heart. And this is where it's dangerous. This is the most dangerous thing a teacher or a parent or a grandparent can do. And that is, bet the farm on someone's heart. And this is what Joel was saying clearly, is you bet the farm on their heart. You bet the whole farm, and you have no idea what they're going to do with it. But if we bet the farm on a kid's heart, if we really trust that that heart is infallible, meaning that it contains the truth within it as a criteria, as a way of, of using to measure reality, then, then this right here, this fact of betting on that farm, if you will, betting on that heart, uh, will, will bear itself out in, in uh, this person growing up. And it'll break your heart because people do not want to follow even, even the truth that they encounter within themselves. They'll deny it. But, but the responsibility of the parent, the responsibility of the educator is to make that drama be a possibility. I often tell the kids, there is no truth that's in your head. There is an objective truth. Truth is objective. It, it exists not because you think it does exist, but it exists because it is true. And we read Plato. You know, we, uh, we read a little Aristotle. We, we read the, the great masters in this. But in this way, ultimately, I keep asking them, compare yourself with it. Compare yourself with this fact. Is it true? Does it correspond? Does it match with you? This is, this is the first step of an evangelization. 
of a really sharing of the gospel is you bet everything on someone's freedom at that level. And it also says, and for me, as a Christian, I, I can say because of my encounter, I know the truth. <laughs> but I know it because I met, well, first the Puerto Rican, but now Joel also, you know what I mean? And, and you, I mean, I, 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 I've met the church, and the church tells me the truth. It tells me the truth. And uh, this, is, uh, this is an important point. How old is the earth and how old is the universe? How, how old is the earth and how old is the universe? Yeah, that's what I always wondered. You, know? you want to try that one or you could be a scientist today. Uh, on the last group, I, we heard, we had a lecturer, um, Father Spitzer from uh, Gonzaga University in, in uh, Spokane came to the seminary recently and he uh, gave us an interesting lecture on uh, on some of the results of it was it was an argument for the existence of God and and he was giving us some of the the results from modern research in physics and mathematics and so on and according to him in the information that he that he presented in the course of his lecture they're pretty sure that um, that the universe is a, is about 15 billion years old based on uh, on the, the way time travels and what we're able to see. In terms of the Earth, he, I suppose it's, uh, I don't know, five billion or whatever the, the standard position is. Um, what's interesting is, is, uh, is always the question, why is there something and not nothing? I have to share one brief thing with this because I love your question. Uh, there's a great Greek thinker, a great philosopher by the name of Aristotle. And um, I was at the Field Museum uh, last fall with my boys to see the King Tut exhibit that was there in Chicago. And, and, and if you go into the formaldehyde section of the field, which is where they have all the stuffed animals and it smells like a science lab, um, there's this beautiful exhibit right in the middle of it where it shows in, in um, physical form this bar that starts at, at about ground level, floor level, and it goes all the way to the ceiling. And it says this is how many forms of uh, species there are of uh, uh, of flora, plants, trees, and whatever. And then right next to it is a little shorter post, which is fauna, you know, uh, invertebrates, um, uh, you know, snails, worms, things like that. And then right next to it is vertebrates, uh, dogs, cows, horses, things like this. And then, and then it said humans, where's the next one? And it was about that thick. And I, and I grabbed my son and I said, come here and look at this. Come here and, 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 and pay attention to this. I said, if you turn that on its side, I said, this is Aristotle's way of looking at reality. It's, uh, you know, that there is a hierarchy, if you will, and the humans are at the, the very top of it. The greatest, the, the greatest point that Aristotle ever taught me was that the first position that we have in front of the stars, in front of the earth, in front of these things, is wonder. That, that we look at the world around us and we, and we ask the question, why? Why is it this way? What is it about it that, that, that fascinates me with this? This is, what, this is what we have to keep alive. The, the question that you're asking is the, the greatest of the human questions because it's the question, why? Why is it this way? Where does it come from? And it, and it begs that deeper question of my origin and my destiny. What, where do I come from and where am I going? From this, from this point of view, I, I, what really fascinates me is, is we have a really good friend 
who also was a student of Father Giussani's. His name is uh, uh, Massimo Roberto. And uh, Massimo Roberto is the chief of the Hubble uh, Science Telescope. And uh, he's a great guy. And, and, and go to NASA and look at the pictures that, that Massimo has taken of the uh, galaxies exploding and colliding and, uh, and, and, and uh, expanding. And, and it really it, it causes that deep question that you're asking. It's the exact same question, which is based on wonder. To look at things with this deep question of why. This is, this is the human position. This is a great human position. The, the question that came up was uh, the metaphor that, that was used earlier about the, the size of the heart and um, its objectivity and its infallibility. The, the, I, I think, as, as, I, as I've kind of looked at, that, at it, that metaphor could be a little limiting, but, but I do want to um, see if we can approach it in this way. The objectivity of the heart is the fact that we don't make it. That's the most important step, is that I don't create my heart and I don't create these desires that are within it. This, this is the same point back to the relativism. I don't create truth. I don't create beauty. I don't create justice. I can't create the good. But I know them because I lack them. So this is the objectivity of the heart when we speak about it in this way. Its infallibility is where it really gets tricky because this is where we have to go back to betting again, betting the farm on that. And, and the objectivity, or I mean, the infallibility of the heart and, and, and the way that we want to look at it is, is that we know that it's correct when it gets met, when it's corresponded to. When there's a, a correspondence, a relationship, when, when, when the heart is looking for an answer, it's looking for satisfaction, it's looking for some kind of response, and it receives it. And the thing about it is, is it seems impossible that the heart will have a correspondence. And then it has a correspondence. Something corresponds to it. Something original corresponds to that heart. I often, the priest who guides us now, Father Julian Caron, calls Jesus the impossible correspondence. And, and I often say I'm going to build a shrine to Our Lady of the Impossible Correspondence, our, our Mother of the Impossible Correspondence. But <clears throat> the way we know it's Christ, the way we can verify it's Jesus, is that it widens us out. It corresponds so much that it opens us wide open. The, the fit, if you will, the size of our heart is, is the fit that, that it takes for that man, that, that man which who is impossible, to enter into our life and to widen us wide open. The greatest description, the greatest description of this uh, correspondence, this impossible correspondence, is the Annunciation. It's the Annunciation, because in this moment, this uh, what was impossible, meaning X, God as an unknown thing, 
become, becomes known. God the infinite, the creator of uh, the earth and the stars and all of reality, the creator of everything, becomes a lump of blood in his mother's womb. But only because she said yes. Only because she said yes. And so the, the heart, as as, um, as an infallible thing, is, is that which says yes to what opens it up, to what widens it out, to what, um, to what makes it get blown open. And so, and so the, the difficulty in our human experience, and we know this, we know this difficulty, our difficulty is, is we try everything to correspond with our heart and it doesn't fit. And, and then we give up. And then we give up. And then we say, we can't say yes anymore because I've said yes to what doesn't fit. But I'm not asking you to say yes to what doesn't fit. The, the proposal is to say yes to the one who corresponds. It seems impossible to find this pair of shoes that fit. But yet he fits. And, and the way that we can verify that, the way that we verify that is it makes me open. It makes me thirst more crave more, long more for truth, for beauty, for justice, for the good. This is why I have a, a great affection for Our Lady, because Our Lady was the first to be uh, open to that possibility. She is the one who, who helps us be together in this way. You can help. I just, I'll just add a, a kind of personal story, um, and it has to do with when I met my wife, um, we were friends for six or nine months before there was a glimmer of anything else. And then when that glimmer started to emerge, I kept repressing it, okay? I think I gave her the good friend speech maybe three times or something. Um, but in the course of developing the friendship, there was always something, I, I didn't want to lose that friendship. But what was impeding me? What, um, I had a certain image of what my wife was going to be like, you know, the one. And Leslie doesn't, didn't fit that image, okay? So I had to work through this image that I had. What enabled me to do it is that every time I was with her, um, I loved being with her. And I remember very precisely the, the phone call. Um, I'd even gone to a different school, so I didn't have to keep you know, giving her the good friend speech. <laughs> um, but I remember a phone call, and, and all of a sudden, all of my resistance, all of that image went away, and it was just like all of a sudden the atmospheric conditions were right, and it just snowed. And I'm a very scrupulous person, which means that there's no decision in my life which I haven't um, revisited a hundred times and wished I'd done it differently, except that one. That, that when I finally yielded to that correspondence, um, I was happy, okay, in that, in, in that relationship in that way. Now, I find the same thing happens with people in other areas. You ask them, does this make you happy? And they say, no, but I want it to. Okay? Well, just wanting a thing to make you happy doesn't make you happy. It either makes you happy or it doesn't. It either fits or it doesn't. Now, I mean, I, I think when Mike used the image of the shoe size, I mean, that's what he was getting at. The fact that our hearts are capable of increasing 
um, and growing, that's a different, um, different use of a metaphor of size. What, what he's pointing to is the fact that when it fits, um, it fits. And when it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. And you can't wish it to fit. Okay? But most of us spend a lot of time trying to make things fit for some other reason. And that's, that's what we're trying to, to point to by looking at the heart is to, to, um, to really look at the real criterion that we should be using for um, making the judgments in our, in our life. Beautiful. Perfect. There's one question that's related that I wanted to, to take up that's here on the table. How can you help your children find their way when you are still looking for your own path? That's a great point. It, it's a great question, but I, but I like it f f for, this, for this reason. That if you are looking, if you are still looking for your path, you are able to give your kids something that most parents aren't. Because what it means, if you're still looking, is that you have the hope that there's something that corresponds to your heart. That's a tremendous gift. I mean, as I've, as I've watched my kids and their friends, the thing that they need over and over and over again is a reason to hope, a reason not to settle for less. So I would say that if you're still looking for your path, um, you have a great deal um, to help your children with simply by um, sharing that path, that journey, that search with them. And if, you, if they see you go through the process of learning to judge things by your heart, uh, you, you will have given them a, a tremendous gift. Here's a, here's a question. Those of us who have adult children who are not going to church, and we as adults have done our best, how hard do we push to get them back? We don't want to really turn them away from us. Do we just stay back and pray? I, I, I think this question is... Um, interesting for two reasons. I think it beautifully expresses the, the anxiety, the frustration um, that we have when we confront this uh, freedom that our kids have and also the freedom of the Lord to act in His own time. I also think that, that this little word, just, is... Um, is, is the lie that too many of us accept. Do we just stay back and pray? First of all, if we really have done what we can do, um, if it really is the game is in, in the ball is in, in God's court, then to pray is the best thing that we can do. It's really the condition even for, um, for when, we're, when we think that we're doing 
we should still always be um, praying. Praying in the sense of the begging that Mike talked about earlier. Um, confronted with this desire in my heart to see my kids or my grandkids um, love the Lord, to experience what I've experienced, if, if that desire is to stay alive and there's nothing I can do, then I, if, I have to cry out. I have to go to the cross and I have to, to beg God to, um, to save my kids or my grandkids. So it's not a matter of just staying back and praying. It's going forward and, 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 and praying. I remember um, the story that I've been told about a priest who, of the Archdiocese of Denver who passed recently. And um, he had a, a nephew, daughter of his sister, who he basically adopted because his sister uh, basically abandoned the, the child. And he raised this kid, and when this kid got to about 15, he did what a lot of kids do, especially growing up with that kind of ban abandonment and wounding and so on. He went crazy. And this, this priest found himself in front of the, the Blessed Sacrament in his parish, night after night, um, crying out. And at one point, he finally got frustrated and said, why do I care so much? Why do I, why do I, why do I, why can't I be at peace about this child? And it was in that moment that he really, he really understood, um, he understood precisely that, that this was what God had done for him, that God was willing to suffer a great deal for him, and that he was, he was suffering with this priest, that it was precisely because um, Christ cares for that child that he couldn't stop caring for that child. So it's a very painful position to be in, but um, unless we want to choke our hearts, that's exactly the position we have to be in, it seems to me. In fact, there was another question that asked about St. Paul, <clears throat> who taught us to pray always, or at least in indicated to pray always. And uh, to explain what Paul was really saying uh, for our busy schedules, and I want to I want to pick up with, with where Joel was talking about this because because he's absolutely correct. Prayer at the level of begging is what changes everything. When prayer is an entreaty, when when prayer is a, a begging, it becomes the most reasonable position of any human position that we have, because the beggar is the one who knows what he's waiting for, who knows what she is waiting for. The beggar waits for something concrete. And so prayer, if it's a begging, is asking for something specific. It's asking for something concrete. And as, as, as Pope Benedict said last weekend even, he said the beggar is the protagonist of history. The beggar changes history. Because this position of reasonably waiting for something, waiting for something to happen, but waiting with a reason, with a very clear reason, is, is, is uh, the most concrete form of prayer. Because, at least from my own experience, I've seen it, and definitely I'm really struck by this story that, you're, that you told. And that is, that is when we ask, 
And, and we've seen it over and over again in the Gospels. It, it, we've seen it over and over again in, in our lives. And that is when we ask, it always gets responded to. It always is responded to. We're never certain how it's going to be responded to. And a lot of times it doesn't end up the way we thought it would be responded to. But we wait with a reason. And so this is the, this is the content of prayer. Is to ask for something at all times. Always to be asking, 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 asking. Begging. Waiting for a reason. This, this is the description of an I. Of, of someone who can say, I, is, is, is the beggar who waits. Because what we're waiting for, ultimately, is you. We're waiting for a face, a human face, that will respond to this question of suffering, of, of, of our children uh, following the faith, of, of even ourselves. <laughs> Come to me, Lord. Show me your face today. I'm restless until I can rest in you. In this sense, Paul really helps us, really educates us that, that, that every moment of our life is worthy of this begging. For me and my friends, I was telling Joel right before lunch, if left to myself, I would never pray ever again. <laughs> I'm just, it's not that I'm incapable of it. It's just that, well, you know, I get up in the morning and I got to pour Cheerios for Luca and then I got to kick the cat out of the way and, you know, and then there's work and it's almost as if there's life and then there's prayer, right? For me, I get up in the morning and I say that little prayer that uh, Father Jim said at lunch, the Angelus, and then I say, Vene Sancti Spiritus, Vene Primarium. And then I make an appointment with a really good friend, Bruce, who meets me every morning at 7.30, and when he's not there or I'm not there, we know it. I wasn't there, you know, uh, today or yesterday. And I meet him every day. I make an appointment, and we pray the hours, with the liturgy of the hours in the morning. In the whole day, no matter how horrible I am, no matter what sin I commit, no matter what uh, um, screwed up, uh, hypocritical position I am in front of my children, the whole day has been saved by that memory that is kept in the morning because it orients the day. It focuses the day. In fact, I find myself during the course of the day quoting the morning prayers, saying something, oh no, this makes sense now. I have an experience of this from that. One last point on this. I learned this when I was in seminary. I went to a Benedictine seminary. So I had Benedictine uh, charism for, for my undergraduate for college. I didn't go to theology. But anyways, uh, uh, there's, there was an old joke that we always used to say. But uh, the, the, the Benedictines pride themselves on their work and their prayer, ora et labora. And, and the old joke when we were in seminary, it wasn't a joke, but it was funny, is um, the, the novice went to the novice master and said, uh, may I smoke while I pray? You know? And he said, absolutely not. Your prayer is to be reserved for your relationship with God. You know, this is the most important moment, and you do not smoke because it is an aberration in front of that prayer. And then the novice said, may I pray while I smoke? And the novice master said, of course, pray always. <laughs> this, this is really true. This is a really true position. Only a Benedictine can look at it like this, you know. And that is, that is make your day an entreaty. 
You know, maybe it's uh, at your desk, it's with your spouse, it's uh, over the meal. But all of your day, if it becomes an asking, if it becomes a begging, if you realize that you're a mendicant, that you have nothing and you own nothing, not the least of which these are of these are your desires, this is the this is the position of the Christian. This is this is the position of the human being uh, in front of everything uh, that he or she stands in front of. I just want to say thank you uh, for today, for me, and, and I'll let Joe speak. Joel speak for himself. I, I've been struck uh, deeply by the simplicity of your faces and uh, by the candor and the honesty of the comments you've made to me personally, those of you who I've met with briefly for a few moments. I really appreciate the warmth and the hospitality. Um, I have to be honest with you, I've been traveling a lot this spring, and, and the last thing I wanted to do was go to Aberdeen, South Dakota. <laughs> I don't mean that in a personal way, but I just got home from Rome on Monday, you know, and, and I'm tired. And, um, and, and I remember yesterday morning when I got out of bed, I got out of bed at 5 in the morning yesterday uh, to come here, and, and, and the begging at the very beginning was, please, give me a face that, that I can follow, you know, in these days. And I have to tell you that uh, for me personally, Personally, um, it, it has been responded to. In the end, I'm a beggar. I'm a mendicant. And uh, to be with you, to see your face, this human face, the church alive, Christ alive, resurrected from the dead, you, you are the victory of Christ. You are his victory. He rises from the dead. I'm celebrating a little bit early, but he rises from the dead in this place. And this is what I came to see. And so for me, I want to thank you because you are truly uh, an affirmation of uh, this uh, new springtime in the church, which Cardinal Ratzinger foresaw 35 years ago. In the middle of a winter, the new, the new signs of a springtime of faith that's present here. And I just want to thank you for me personally, uh, for, for your faith and your witness to this. Thank you for being with me today in this way. I wanted to say something similar. They say that um, that a church gets the priests that it deserves, hmm. and uh, and so now I understand better um, why I like your seminarians so much. So I I do think that they that they're that there's a correspondence there. I also want to say that um, as their teacher, I'm very glad to have your faces in mind now, because now I know who I'm helping them. Um, come serve, and so it'll be a it'll be a great joy to be able to um, to share with them that uh, that bit of experience of of you. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.